Welcome to Reimagining the Internet from the Initiative for Digital Public Infrastructure at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. We're talking to researchers, techies, activists, academics, and journalists about what's wrong with the internet and how to fix it. I'm your host, Ethan Zuckerman. Welcome, everyone, to the third day and the third panel in our week-long effort to reimagine the internet. We're thrilled uh, that you're joining us today, and, and I hope we have a lot of folks who have, uh, were with us for the first two days. Today, we're going to have a conversation about one possible avenue for promoting competition in the social media market and perhaps addressing some of the pathologies in online discourse. And we'll be talking about interoperability, the idea that the walled gardens of Facebook and Instagram and Twitter might be healthier if they were forced open so that their competitors uh, or perhaps just their would-be but unwelcome collaborators could interoperate. And after Corey, we'll hear from Daphne Keller. Daphne is a legal scholar and the director of intermediary liability at the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford Law School. She was formerly associate general counsel to Google, and she's one of the most prolific and insightful writers about the challenges of regulating social media. If you're on Twitter and care about these issues, and I'm sure you've come across Daphne's extraordinary threads. Um, so let me start by saying I want to believe I want to believe in competitive compatibility. I want even more to believe in adversarial interoperability because I, I like the term better. Um, and, and I want to believe in what a smart person involved in this event described to me as a plethora of social networks accessed by tools that let people interact with multiple networks, including existing and small ones. That, that is a great future. Um, and I especially want to believe that there's a way for different communities to set and enforce different rules for speech and for what kind of communications are permitted in, in a particular service, um, because that would solve a lot of problems in the area where I work, which is on the, the regulation of internet platforms. Um, and there are a bunch of smart people here and yeah, like I, maybe we can figure this out. Um, and if you guys tell me that we can get the technology right, so this will work, and if you tell me that we can get the money right so that there are people with incentives to do the right things to bring the system into being, I will go with you and try to get the law right, um, which is the kind of thing that, that I do for a living. Um, but I see hurdles. Um, so I'm going to talk to you first about the legal problems that I think adversarial interoperability or competitive compatibility can solve uh, and why it's so important. Um, Although you already know like two thirds of that from Corey, but I'll try to say other reasons. Uh, but I'm also going to talk about the problems that we have to solve first in order to get there. Um, and just to preview those things, because I, I think I might run out of time and not go into the details much, um, and then we can talk about them in the Q&A or not. Um, but, but to preview the, the hurdles, um, it's not just that we need to fix problems with the CFAA and with the DMCA anti-circumvention provisions um, and you know, all the other things that get in the way of scraping state CFAA equivalents, trespass to chattels, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I definitely agree we need to fix those. Um, but there are also really tricky questions about privacy that I think haven't been solved yet in the proposals that we've seen to date. Um, and then there are really tricky questions about how to make distributed content moderation work in practice, and this is where the money part comes in, because unless we can build in some kind of efficiencies so that you know thinly staffed operations can do real-world content moderation, um, that, that will be a real barrier to, to getting this to work. Um, okay, 
So the, the, like the vision, the problems that this might solve, um, there's a big set of problems over in the area of online speech where Alex and I and many, many other people work, where um, right now there's a lot of wishful thinking that if we just yelled at Facebook enough, it would adopt the right rules for speech. Um, or that if we just pass the right laws, then all of the problems with harmful content and illegal content and misleading content on the internet would go away. Um, I, I think you can tell already that I think that's delusional. Um, it's delusional as just a social human matter. We're not going to agree on what the rules are. Um, and then Facebook imposes them and we're all happy. Um, but but I, they're also doomed as a legal matter. Um, and there are two First Amendment problems here. The first is, if what we want is for platforms to take down a bunch of things like hate speech, disinformation, misleading medical advice, uh, pro-suicide content, racial slurs, like awful stuff, um, that is nonetheless protected by the First Amendment, uh, then there's nothing you can do using the law to, to make that happen. Um, if, and that sort of gets in the way of a lot of proposals that, that mostly Democrats want to advocate for um, generally. I think actually this whole issue is less partisan than it's made out to be. But, you know, we, we can't make the bad con content go away using the law. Um, if, on the other hand, what we want is to stop powerful gatekeepers from controlling public discourse and potentially exercising political bias and like removing important voices from the conversation, if you want to stop that, you kind of can't use the law for that either because you run into a problem where the platforms themselves have First Amendment rights to act as editors and decide what to take down. Um, and so there are you know, barriers in every direction, almost regardless of which theory of the speech problem on the internet you are starting with. Um, but if instead you don't start by telling platforms what to do with speech and what user content to take down and leave up, and you instead say, this is a change in the competition obligations and you have to open up to the you know, adversarial interoperability or competitive compatibility or any of these things um, to Mike Masnick's protocols, not platforms model, um, that's pretty interesting because then it's not Congress saying something about what speech is and is not permitted. You know, it might get us around a lot of these First Amendment barriers and lead to, I think, a better outcome than you would get, you know, if we could circumvent those First Amendment barriers by actually having uh, a diverse array of editors, um, you know, having a, a multiplicity of communities with different rules for speech and no one or four or five gatekeepers having such tremendous power over public discourse in, in the ways that they do today. Um, and, and so it's, it's that sort of vision of a, a way forward that solves a lot of these speech problems and the competition problems um, that makes me really excited about this conversation. Um, and, and, the way I envision it, and again, because I'm focused on, on the speech issues, is what Corey called an all-you-can-eat buffet for competitors, um, where Google or Facebook opens up access to an uncurated version of its service. So either all of the user-generated content or Facebook or Google takes down the stuff they know is illegal um, and then everything else is left there available for competitors to come along and curate 
and offer their own version. So you could subscribe to a G-rated version of Twitter from Disney or a racial justice-oriented lens on YouTube from a Black Lives Matter-affiliated group. Um, you know, you can envision a, a lot of possibilities here. Maybe you can have an interface where you merge content from Twitter and content from YouTube, um, as you know, Power Ventures <laughs> was trying to do before they fell to a CFAA claim uh, from from Facebook. Um, the, this this is a really compelling vision, and that as a legal approach is broadly analogous to things that we've done in telecommunications. Um, unbundling requirements is the sort of name for inserting competition into markets that are subject to network effects by requiring the incumbents to license out the hard-to-duplicate resources to newcomers. And here, the hard-to-duplicate resource is us. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's us and our social graphs and, and all of the content that we've generated that is this sort of dragon's hoard um, that the, the incumbents are sitting on. Um, so I, when I've written about this, I've called it magic APIs. And the reason I called it that initially, uh, first is because I'm used to talking to engineers. It turns out that nobody else likes that term. Um, but I was worried that like the technology didn't actually work, that you couldn't have this real time, time interoperability where a competitor can like run a query across all of Google's corpus of web content over an API. Like, does that actually work? I don't know. Um, but we have Stephen Wolfram testifying to Congress that he thinks there's a way to make it work. We have Twitter's project Blue Sky, which is about trying to make it work. So we have technologists who seem to think it's possible. As, as I always say, I would love to hear what the platform engineers would say if their lawyers weren't listening um, about what they think is possible. Um, but then the, the other, the next barrier I worry about that I mentioned before is the getting the money right. Um, because I just don't know. And, and I, you know, I think there's a way forward. It's just, this isn't my area and I haven't figured it out or seen somebody else who figured it out. I don't know how to get the financial incentives right. And I also don't know how to get the ad tech piece right. Like how, how do you restructure where ads go and who makes money? Uh, I think that's doable, but I, I haven't seen the, the thinking. The two big pieces that I do worry about are the, as I mentioned before, privacy and the burden on um, content moderation, the burden of providing content moderation. So I'll, I'll talk about the content moderation burden first. Um, we tried something like this back in the 90s for web content. Um, there was something called PICS and then later the ICRA, the Internet Content Rating Association. And the idea was that as a user, you would tell your browser what kind of content you're willing to see. Um, you know, female frontal nudity, yes or no. Um, violence against cartoon animals, yes or no. Uh, in a pretty granular set of checkboxes. Um, you, you as a user put that in your browser and then every webmaster on the internet fills out that same kind of form and then your browser does or does not access content depending on whether it matches your preferences. And of course, you know, ICRA promptly noticed nobody was going to put in the labor to do this, to label every website on the internet. So then they layered on um, what Corey is calling fiduciaries, um, this idea that it, as a user, you can 
in addition to setting your own preferences, you can subscribe to ad lists or block lists from trusted third parties. So you can get, you know, the uh, League of Women Voters or the National Rifle Association, whatever uh, your trusted fiduciary is as a um, to supplement and tell you what content you do and do not want to see. Um, so I could have built that and no one came. Um, there was no magic volunteer labor force to label all of the speech on the internet, even back when there was a whole lot less of it. Um, the kinds of incentives that bring people to Wikipedia or to fund open source product projects didn't exist there and I think won't exist now just because of the incredible scale of trying to um, <laughs> trying to assess and judge all of our speech, right? That's the root problem of a lot of this stuff. Um, one piece of a you know a possible solution going forward now, we fast forward to the present, you know, could there be a system where let me back up. If if every um, node on a federated network that wants to set its own content moderation policies, um, has to reduplicate the effort of, say, translating a video from Kurdish um, or identifying what a piece of slang means in Malaysia or figuring out the political significance of a particular flag or song. That is not work that every little entity in a distributed network can do. Um, and so the, the kind of dream that I've heard from a lot of people, um, but it would cost a lot of money and maybe it doesn't work, is you find some way to have you know, metadata attached to content or some big database linked to a unique ID for content where if you are a small entity doing content moderation, you ping that and you get something back that says, oh, this is a song in Kurdish that is anti-Turkey. Um, and then at least you have that much information to apply your own policy about the what content you do and, and don't permit. Um, this is something that lots of content moderators at small platforms would like right now. Um, and it would be amazing if it happened. On the other hand, um, what we realistically see in collaboration and content moderation between platforms now is a lot of uh, Facebook decides and that flows downstream to everybody else. Um, things like the GIF-CT database for filtering terrorist content are rightly questioned and criticized as just a possible way that the judgment of major um, platforms gets disseminated out to everybody else and, and becomes a source of a monoculture and you know further dominance of, of the major platforms on the internet. So I think we need to find a way to solve that content moderation burden question. Maybe we can, um, but, but I, I don't see people doing the work on that yet. Um, on privacy, so I love tearing down the CFAA um, and the other laws that Corey talked about. And I love the idea of having better privacy laws, period, which we very much need no matter what, but also as part of a way forward for, for the adversarial interoperability approach. Um, but I think there are problems that aren't solved yet. Um, one is the, I'll call it the, you can't consent for your friends problem. Um, if I want to leave Facebook 
I want to leave with my history of interactions with my friends and with the comments they made on my baby pictures. Um, and I want to migrate all of that data with me, but that need, means either that I'm taking my friend's data to some potentially fly-by-night new third-party service that they would never consent to have their data if they knew about it, um, or I can't take my friend's data with me, and that makes migrating to the competing platform a lot less appealing. Um, or maybe I need to get their consent. And so every time somebody migrates away from Facebook, every single one of their friends gets you know, flooded with uh, dialogue boxes asking about consent. Uh, I have not seen that problem solved. And I think laws like the Access Act kind of just gloss over it and don't pick a side. I, I don't think it resolves. I'm hoping Corey has an answer because like I said, I, I want to believe. Um, the second privacy issue is what I'll call the, the public data badly used issue. So a, a lot of people, including me, start with a assumption that if data is already publicly available on a website, that should be fair game for legitimate kinds of reuse, you know, reuse that doesn't infringe copyright, reuse that doesn't raise some, some other um, valid legal problem. Um, but what do we do about Clearview AI? You know, everything that all the, the images, you know, of my face and probably of most of your faces that are now in that database being used by police, those were scraped from public websites. And at least at the beginning, they were lo looking for, um, I think it was Clearview, one, one of the biometrics firms was just pulling Creative Commons licensed images, which is this, you know, kind of disturbing shift from Creative Commons licenses being created to get rid of a copyright problem to the flow of information and then becoming a mechanism that made it easier for a privacy problem to be created by Clearview AI building a, um, a biometrics database out of it. Um, so it is very hard to identify what rules we would craft to address the Clearview AI problem. And then the, the third privacy issue I see is, I'll call it the horses out the barn door problem. Um, if we have interoperability and the idea is that new competitors can come and scoop up data, but then if they do something bad with it, they face liability later on, um, that sounds good. But what do you do if that new competitor who comes along is actually a pretty bad actor and is not in US jurisdiction? Um, the platform can cut them off, but it's kind of too late. A user can sue them, but they're probably judgment-proof, and also it's too late. DOJ could try to prosecute them, but same problem. Um, are, are we okay with that risk? And if not, is there some way that we can mitigate it that doesn't involve making the platform police and audit its competitors to make sure they're using the data right? So I just... I think there's a way forward. I want there to be a way forward, but I, I do think we need like a hundred smart privacy and technology experts hammering on this particular piece of the problem. Um, and I'll, I'll just note one interesting thing for the my fellow old people um, in the audience who've, who've been around these internet questions for a long time, is that the, the role that copyright law once played uh, in internet debates as a kind of default reason that you could never share anything um, has largely been eroded by like good case law and you know evolutions in, in standards. Um, but increasingly privacy is playing that role. Um, privacy becomes a reason, particularly under European data protection law, 
um, to be a default against sharing personal data without a specific basis, which in many cases is consent by the, the person um, who, whose data it is or the person about whom the data is. Um, similarly, Facebook's FTC consent decree, which it reached in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, was the reason, as I understand that it pointed to, um, to prevent election researchers at NYU from scraping Facebook. There is this, you know, privacy reason arrived at for really good privacy purposes that had the unintended effect of restricting um, scraping and, and productive research. So much like copyright, privacy law here is simultaneously doing really important work to protect real values and getting the, in the way of things that should be okay. And we haven't figured out how, how to negotiate that yet. Um, all right. I will close up there because I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Um, I really hope we can chart a way forward because I love this idea. I love that it doesn't run headlong into First Amendment violations or into dictating speech rules for the world. Um, but and I, I love it because it when I when I teach this subject, I draw on the board for my students a, a Venn diagram with three interlocking circles. There's competition, privacy, and speech. And there are a million issues at the intersection of two of them. And then this one's like right in the middle. It is the sweet spot where every single one of those issues comes up. But maybe every single one of those issues can be resolved in this single like magic Gordian knot cutting moment. Um, so I hope we can figure out how to do that. Reimagining the Internet is hosted by me, Ethan Zuckerman, and produced by Mike Sugarman, who also composed this music. Follow us at publicinfrastructure.org to learn more about what we're up to at the Initiative for Digital Public Infrastructure, and please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it.